Claudine Petrie, better known as Dee Dee Blanchard, was born on May 3, 1967, in Louisiana. In 1991, at the age of 24, Dee Dee began dating 17-year-old Rod Blanchard and became pregnant with his child. The two decided to marry. However, the marriage was short-lived due to Rod's young age, and the two divorced prior to the birth of their daughter, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. After the birth, Dee Dee went to live with her family, where it is believed that she starved her own mother to death while acting as her caretaker. By the time Gypsy was three months old, Dee Dee was convinced that Gypsy had sleep apnea. When Gypsy was seven or eight years old, she had a minor accident and scraped her knee. Dee Dee became convinced that this injury would require several surgeries, and after this injury, it was reported that Gypsy was confined to a wheelchair. As the years progressed, so did Gypsy's reported health problems. At some point, Dee Dee began homeschooling Gypsy, claiming that her daughter was too ill to attend public school. Dee Dee told others that her daughter had leukemia, hearing and sight problems, muscular dystrophy, and seizures. She had Gypsy's salivary glands removed and a feeding tube inserted into her stomach. Dee Dee shaved Gypsy's head, telling her that her hair would fall out from chemotherapy treatments. As time went on, Dee Dee continued to take Gypsy to doctor after doctor for any number of medical conditions. At one point, one doctor had a suspicion that Gypsy was not as ill as Dee Dee claimed, and he even wrote in his notes that he believed this was a case of Munchausen by proxy, but he never reported it to social services. In 2009, an unknown caller did contact social services as they were concerned that Dee Dee used different birth dates for Gypsy. The caseworker, believing that Gypsy was intellectually disabled, believed Dee Dee's story that false information was a way to keep her abusive ex-husband from finding them. In fact, Gypsy's father was not abusive and consistently sent child support money and tried to maintain contact with his daughter. As Gypsy matured, Dee Dee continued to lie about her age, so she was never sure how old she was. Gypsy has said that she always knew she could walk, but believed that the other conditions were real. After Hurricane Katrina, Gypsy and Dee Dee moved to Missouri. They received an outpouring of charity and donations including airline tickets, concert tickets, and a house from Habitat for Humanity. As Gypsy matured, she began to rebel against the near total control her mother was exerting over her. On one occasion, she met a man at a convention and ran away from home to be with him. Dee Dee was able to locate Gypsy and promptly went to bring her back home, humiliating Gypsy in the process. She also reportedly smashed Gypsy's computer with a hammer and handcuffed her to a bed for two weeks. After this attempt to run away, Dee Dee had legal papers drawn up stating that Gypsy was incompetent to make her own decisions, thereby giving Dee Dee full legal control over every aspect of Gypsy's life for the foreseeable future. Gypsy's attempts at independence did not stop, however, and she was able to obtain a cell phone and created a profile on a Christian singles dating website. The website is where she met Nicholas Godijohn in 2012. Nicholas was a young man with many difficulties of his own. He had a prior criminal charge for indecent exposure and was reportedly diagnosed with autism. He also claimed to have disassociative identity disorder or multiple personalities. Nicholas and Gypsy engaged in an online relationship and it was noted that Nicholas often requested Gypsy to dress up and engage in various BDSM themed sexual chats. Gypsy later said that this was something she was uncomfortable with but engaged in for him. Gypsy and Nicholas fantasized about getting married and having children. 
Eventually, Gypsy told Nicholas what was occurring in her home, that she was being portrayed as ill when she did not believe that she was, and that her mother was exerting total control over her life. Gypsy later paid for Nicholas to travel to Missouri from his home in Wisconsin to meet her and her mother. They staged a situation where they both happened to go to the same movie. While there, Dee Dee commented that she did not like Nicholas as she thought he was, quote, creepy. While at the movie, Gypsy and Nicholas snuck into a public restroom where they had sex. After this encounter, their relationship only intensified as they began to plan Gypsy's escape from the house by killing her mother, Dee Dee. In June 2015, Nicholas traveled to Dee Dee and Gypsy's home where Gypsy helped him sneak into the house by leaving the back door unlocked. Gypsy sat with her ears covered in the bathroom while Nicholas stabbed Dee Dee to death as she slept in her bed. After the murder, the two had sex in Gypsy's room, stole $4,000 in cash, then fled to a nearby hotel. While there, they realized to their horror that they still had not disposed of the murder weapon. Gypsy and Nicholas placed the knife in an envelope and mailed it to Nicholas's parents' home in Wisconsin, where they planned to intercept and dispose of it. The two then boarded a bus to Wisconsin. Once they arrived, Gypsy asked Nicholas to post two updates on the Facebook page Dee Dee and Gypsy shared. Both posts alluded to Dee Dee having been murdered and Gypsy having been raped and kidnapped. Gypsy reportedly did this in hopes that someone would discover Dee Dee's body at the home and to manipulate those who knew them into believing that Gypsy had been abducted. When friends of the Blanchard saw these posts, they contacted police who initiated a welfare check at the home. On June 14, 2015, they found the body of Dee Dee Blanchard. Police initially believed that Gypsy may have been kidnapped. However, a friend of the family whom Gypsy confided in alerted them about a secret boyfriend she had met online. When the police determined the IP address of the computer that made the gruesome Facebook posts, they discovered it belonged to Nicholas. Wisconsin police later raided Nicholas's parents' home, where they found both Nicholas and Gypsy. Both were charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action. However, once the state learned of the medical abuse Gypsy suffered, she was offered a plea agreement for the charge of second-degree murder. She pled guilty and was sentenced to serve 10 years in prison. Nicholas took his case to trial where he argued that he had had a diminished capacity due to a low IQ and because he had been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. In addition to full acquittal, the jury had the option of convicting him on voluntary manslaughter, second-degree murder, or first-degree murder. Nicholas was found guilty of first-degree murder after just two hours of jury deliberation. He was sentenced to life in prison. Dee Dee's family stated that due to her erratic and criminal behavior, including reportedly trying to poison her stepmother with weed killer, they were content having no relationship with her and were not surprised by her murder or distraught over her death. This episode is about the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard.
Hello, and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark aspects of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So the case that we're talking about today, the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, is one that we first became aware of when we watched the HBO documentary called Mommy Dead and Dearest. This documentary really details this case, so if you're interested in learning more about it and learning about it in more detail, make sure to check it out. The documentary starts out showing that Gypsy and her boyfriend, Nicholas, killed Dee Dee and that it was premeditated, so they were both being charged with first-degree murder, which in Wisconsin can result in the death penalty. So at first, it seemed like a pretty straightforward case. They killed her, they planned it, they should be held fully responsible for it, right? But as the documentary progressed and we learned more about Dee Dee and her treatment of Gypsy, it really changed my viewpoint on things. How about you, David? Yeah, definitely. I think this was a really interesting case. What really came out of this and what was probably most interesting was that we really were not incredibly fascinated with Gypsy herself and her story, but more so that of her mother. Yeah, I mean, I think what happened to Gypsy was very, was just awful. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like to live through that. But for me, Gypsy's behavior was more understandable. Not saying justified, but I'm saying like I could understand why she did what she did. Sure. It was a lot more difficult for me to understand Dee Dee's behavior. Right. And so that's really what we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about on this episode. Not to say that we won't come back to Gypsy's case in particular. Yeah, I I have some thoughts that I, I want to talk about with regard to Gypsy, but I really want to dive into the psychology of Dee Dee and people who have Munchausen by proxy, um, and kind of figure out what is going on there. Sure, let's do it. So as David alluded to, people, including one of Gypsy's physicians, believed that Dee Dee had a psychological disorder called Munchausen by proxy. So it's important to point out that she was actually never formally diagnosed with this disorder, and because now that she's dead, we, we can't actually diagnose her with Munchausen by proxy. But experts have argued that there was quite a bit of evidence to suggest that this was what was going on. Right. So what is Munchausen by proxy? So this was kind of interesting. I had to do some research into, like, I thought Munchausen was a person. Like, maybe that's who the disorder was named after, like the person who discovered it. Right. I think that's the the normal uh, sort of understanding of it. Yeah. Well, that is not the case in this case. So the term Munchausen comes from the Baron Munchausen. Uh, who was a fictional character, and he experienced all of these, like, impossible and outlandish adventures. So in 1951, Sir Richard Asher, who was an English hematologist and endocrinologist, became very interested in patients who were feigning illness, who engaged in self-harm, and caused themselves injuries, all so they could receive medical care. And apparently this was something that was going on quite a bit in 1951 in England. And he named this syndrome after the Baron Munchausen, this fictional character, hence the name Munchausen syndrome. But Munchausen syndrome occurs when an individual purposefully feigns illness in themselves. Munchausen by proxy occurs when an individual feigns or creates illness in another person. So it often occurs with parents who make their children ill, and it occurs more often in mothers than in fathers, although it does occur in fathers as well. Hmm. So Munchausen by proxy or Munchausen syndrome is not actually a diagnosis in the DSM. 
It's now called factitious disorder imposed on another, and that's a big mouthful, but it means basically the same thing. So according to the DSM, factitious disorder occurs when a person purposefully fabricates physical or psychological symptoms or causes an injury or disease in themselves in order to get attention from others for being sick. And similar to Munchausen by proxy, factitious disorder imposed on another is when an individual misrepresents, simulates, causes, or exaggerates physical or psychological symptoms in another person. The motivation for this behavior is to gain sympathy and care from others for being sick. Although external rewards such as money or gifts can occur, the main motivation for the behavior is not to receive these external incentives. That was something that we kind of went back and forth about, I think, with this case. Wouldn't you say that, that, that she was sort of a con artist at first, I think, was your original thought, and then we kind of looked at it again? Well, there did seem to be like some elements of that, that, that Dee Dee seemed to really enjoy these external benefits that she got from Gypsy being sick. Right. And so when somebody, when the main motivation for feigning illness, whether it's psychological illness or physical illness, is external incentives, we actually call that malingering. But in this case, it seemed like it went beyond just that. It wasn't just about conning other people and getting money. Um, It seemed like there was a much, there was more motivation to get that care, get that attention, to be seen as this doting mother. So I think this factitious disorder imposed on another really does fit for this case. Okay, interesting. Malingering is something you have a lot of experience with. Yes. In your job, right? Yes, and we'll definitely have some cases where we're going to talk about that. There's been some pretty famous uh, cases with serial killers in particular where they have malingered mental illness as a way to try to get out of being responsible for their crimes. Yeah, I remember a case uh, not too long ago of a famous mob boss. Right, yeah. Same thing. So we will definitely be talking about that in, in future episodes. But in this case, it does seem that that factitious disorder imposed on another probably was a good fit for Dee Dee, even though we can't formally provide that diagnosis. Okay. So it's been estimated that approximately 1% of all hospital patients meet criteria for factitious disorder. Not factitious disorder imposed on another, but just factitious disorder for themselves. And that was kind of surprising to me. I mean, that seemed like a lot of people that are in the hospital, 1% that are not, that are actually purposefully feigning their symptoms. Well, again, this would be... I mean, we would look at it in anything, like anything in psychology, it would be on a spectrum, probably. And maybe some people are just exaggerating right. symptoms that they have, not necessarily cons- totally fabricating them, right? but exaggerating them, making them seem worse than they really are to get the attention that they're craving. And I think that's a good point because for a disorder or for a diagnosis of factitious disorder, it doesn't require that the person is like intentionally making themselves sick. It could be more that exaggeration piece. So we know it's about 1% of hospital patients that meet criteria for a factitious disorder. And factitious disorder imposed on another is more rare. So there's no good studies giving us an exact number on how often this occurs, but it's believed that approximately 1,000 out of the 2.5 million child abuse cases reported every year in the U.S. are factitious disorder imposed on another. So another term that you'll hear to describe this disorder is something that you actually said in your introduction is medical child abuse. So that is another way that you might hear people refer to this disorder. So 
We don't actually know exactly what leads to this disorder, just like pretty much everything when it comes to mental health. But some theories suggest that the parents with this disorder may have had a history of childhood illness, a history of childhood abuse, or lost a parent as a child. Some have also theorized that parents with this disorder have an insecure attachment style. So there's this whole area of psychology that addresses the way that people form attachments to one another. John Bowlby is the psychiatrist whose name is most often associated with attachment theory. And Bowlby believed that all primates, including humans, had an innate need to attach to their caregivers. And this makes sense because primates, including humans, can't survive if we're not taken care of as infants. So some animals, they're young, they're born, and they are able to just kind of survive on their own. They don't really need their parents to feed them or care for them. For us, we're, we're born at a, um, in a developmental stage where we're not able to do that for ourselves. So if a child doesn't attach to their caregiver, if they're not taken care of, they're not going to survive. And so attachment theory really came out of this whole understanding. So attachment theory, I mean, this gets into things that uh, like reactive attachment disorder when children are not cared for the way that we have to be, I guess, in order to really thrive. Right. And so that that's really the most severe case of an attachment difficulty is reactive attachment disorder. And that does tend to happen in, in children who were severely abused or neglected. Um, they saw, they really kind of started to see a lot of that with the children who were in the Romanian orphanages, right. where they were basically just warehoused and, and then adopted at much later ages when they were much older. Right. Setting them up for a lifetime of psychological issues yeah. and emotional issues. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So what's interesting to me is the way that children attach to their caregivers And this was something that psychologist Mary Ainsworth explored through her research using the strange situation scenario. So in this scenario, a one to two-year-old child enters a room with their mother, a stranger then enters the room, and then the mother leaves. Then the mother comes back, the stranger leaves, then mom leaves, so the, the child's by themselves, then the stranger returns, then mom returns, and then the stranger leaves. So it really gave the psychologist the opportunity to observe the child in all child in all of these different scenarios with all these with mom and with the stranger present. Okay. So the child was observed to see how he or she responded dur- throughout the situation, like I said, and how they responded to the mother after the mother returned to the room. So this research was done in the 1970s. So just a little disclaimer. So they really were only looking at mothers. Now we give far more credit to the roles of fathers, and we recognize that fathers are often primary caregivers. But at that time, there was a lot of focus on the mother. So that's why I keep saying mom. Thank you, Sigmund Freud. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, what Ainsworth found were four different attachment styles. The best case scenario occurred when the child had a secure attachment to his or her caregiver. This happens when the parent is attuned and responsive to the child's needs. The child feels secure and that the parent will be there. And it fosters a sense of connection and security that allows a child to develop his or her independence. However, when the parents are not attuned and and they're not um, responsive to the children, children can develop insecure attachments. There are actually three insecure attachment styles. So anxious ambivalent is one. Anxious avoidant is another. And disorganized is the final one. 
So although it's believed that our attachment style is primarily developed when we're infants and young children, the way we attach to others impacts our relationships for the rest of our lives. So that early on attachment period is very, very important is what they've found. Some research has suggested that individuals with factitious disorder imposed on another often have insecure attachment styles. It's been estimated that 85% of women with this disorder had an insecure attachment style with both their own appearance and with their children. So these individuals tended to grow up in environments where sometimes the parents were there and responded promptly to the child, and other times they were absent. Right. They also may have had parents who responded to their physical needs, but were not psychologically available to the children. The worst case scenario was when a parent was abusive. This creates a dynamic where the child is fearful of the parent, but also must rely on the parent to survive. Children with insecure attachments basically learn they cannot rely on others to be there consistently. They may have difficulty developing empathy and understanding emotions because of this. Those with the most severe attachment difficulties may grow up to be very controlling and compulsive parents. It's been suggested that a significant insecure attachment style, coupled with those other life events that I mentioned earlier, like the loss of a parent, only receiving care and affection when they were sick, or even witnessing their parents use medical deception can combine to create this factitious disorder imposed on another. So that's kind of, you know, the more dry clinical explanation. And again, it's not a 100% explanation for this type of behavior, this type type of disorder. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it, because I think that your, your background probably has a whole lot more with regard to theories on how this develops and where it comes from. I think we both agreed that Didi was really what we wanted to look at in this case. Yeah. What you just described, I see all the time um, in treating substance abuse. So you, as far as attachment styles? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Attachment styles. Because the relationship um, when a parent is, when one parent or both parents has a substance abuse issue, um, the relationship is really about them and the substance and Mm -hmm. so uh, it's very easy for the children or child to get pushed out of that relationship and not become the center stage and so substance abuse inside of a family dynamic makes things very unpredictable yeah and i think that's a good point and that wasn't one of the things that i talked about so i think that that's yeah thanks for pointing that out because somebody who's using drugs or alcohol who's addicted to drugs or alcohol they're not able to be responsive and attuned to their kids. So it just sort of interests me how we both see parts of this in what we both do professionally, you and your forensic evaluations and me and substance abuse treatment. We both see elements of attachment issues going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and there's a lot of people that believe that um, attachment styles are what underlie personality disorders. So, because again, even though it's something that gets formed very early in our lives, it follows us throughout our lifespan. Um, And it takes a lot of work to kind of change our attachment style. I agree. I think that attachment style has to play a huge part in how we develop our personalities as we grow up. You and I sort of, we talked about this, and I, I remember your original idea was to look at her criminal behavior like this is a this is a con woman you know and that was part of it right yeah and certainly you know child abuse is a crime and had this been detected 
when she was alive, it's certainly something that she could have been prosecuted for. Right. But as we sort of got more and more into this, we sort of started to see more eye to eye on the emotional issues that Dee Dee was really having. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there's definitely some psychological stuff going on that's underlying this behavior. Right. I personally believe that her problems were definitely more emotional, say, than criminal. I, I While there was that secondary gain of all the um, the monetary things. Yeah. Um, and there was some history of her uh, writing bad checks, right? Um, manipulating people for monetary gain in her past. Mm-hmm. I really think that this was an emotional sort of psychological issue in the sense that she was deathly afraid of being abandoned. And I know what that sounds like. This isn't going to be a very, this first part isn't going to be very transpersonally necessarily, but more of somebody who I think has sort of a borderline personality disorder presentation. Okay. And borderline is one of those 10 personality disorders in the DSM. We talked a little bit about antisocial personality disorder before um, but I'm, I'm guessing you're going to enlighten us on borderline personality disorder well a little bit I I think you would probably be more qualified to really expand on that than I would um, and what what it means to be a borderline personality somebody who suffers from borderline personality disorder but there seems to be a couple of elements that I really, really wanted to touch on that are contained within borderline personality disorder that we really see here and that's when we take a look at Didi, we see the obvious Munchausen by proxy issue, which seemed to be at the center of this case. So Didi was making Gypsy Rose appear sick to reap material rewards such as a house, trips, attention, and the basic goodwill of those that knew both of them. But there are some other things going on here that I think lend this case to more emotional issues of Didi that sort of had the criminal element as a product of what was going on but rather the sole cause of it. In other words, I don't believe that she set out to be a criminal. I think that, that was just sort of... A byproduct. Kind of, right, which is what you mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. Right. So the first part of the story that fascinated me was Dee Dee's desire to infantilize Gypsy. There was a great deal in the story about keeping Gypsy unaware of her true age and about her using Gypsy's so-called illnesses to keep her isolated. It was believed that Gypsy was taken out of school sometime between kindergarten and second grade. The story goes that Dee Dee tried to keep Gypsy isolated in order to make her believe that she was indeed much younger than she was as a way to control certain aspects of her personality from growing up. Mm-hmm. For instance, children's movies were always playing at the Blanchard House while Dee Dee strictly controlled Gypsy's access to the outside world. To me, there seems to be some serious abandonment issues here. It's as if Dee Dee was attempting to control every aspect of Gypsy's life in order to ensure that she would never ever grow up and leave her. This kind of manipulation has an almost borderline personality feel to it to me. Um, There seemed to be a very strong aversion to Gypsy ever growing up and thereby leaving Dee Dee to then go on and live her own life. I think this was accomplished for a good deal of time by both the infantilization of Gypsy and by convincing Gypsy that she was indeed sick and therefore helpless and dependent on Dee Dee when she wasn't, or what is known as Munchausen by proxy. But And she also wanted her to have to depend on her for everything because she was so afraid of being by herself. Right. And so to create this sort of case, again, that we that I spoke about in the last episode about learned helplessness, how do we teach Gypsy to be completely helpless and 100% dependent on Dee Dee? Right. And, and she definitely 
tried to create that scenario and it worked for a long time worked for a long time mm-hmm. longer than it probably should have because what was gypsy when the when they murdered Dee, Dee? she was 19 years old at the time i believe so i think she was 19 right so. because she was 23 in the special in the right. documentary right right after having served a couple of years in prison right this also satisfied Dee Dee's need for adoration as some kind of guardian angel who had dedicated her life to taking care of her sick daughter when in fact it was quite the opposite she was doing this for her own emotional needs. Yeah. Right. And we'll get to that a little bit later um, when I start talking about the the Jungian idea of the mother complex. But um, one of my favorite, speaking of Jung, one of my favorite Jungian scholars by the name of Robert A. Johnson, um, who's written a lot about uh, the unconscious bargain or sort of deal that every woman must make when they decide to become a mother, which is that one day they know deep down inside, that their precious child will grow up and leave. This seems to be Dee Dee's biggest fear and archetypically one of the biggest issues that a parent can hand down to a child, setting them up for some serious complexes, which again, we'll get to a little bit later. But it seems to be that borderline personality disorder is motivated first and foremost by a very unconscious and very irrational fear of being abandoned. Would you agree? I would agree with that, yes. So that's where... The borderline personality disorder comes up for me. And just like you said, it sort of fits in with this very... Insecure attachment. Insecure attachment. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I can see that. Okay. It did not appear that after Dee Dee's divorce um, with Gypsy's father, that Dee Dee had any real romantic prospects. So keeping Gypsy sick flooded Dee Dee with the attention and admiration that she craved. However, her adult relationships seemed quite limited and very surface level. This also led to Dee Dee's relationship with Gypsy also evolving into something different than a manipulation to keep Gypsy at home, but rather into something we call covert or emotional incest. Hmm. Right, this is also another way of manipulating Gypsy into not abandoning her. So what emotional incest is, it's generally described as one of the parents forming an inappropriate psychological or emotional relationship with their child. This typically happens when the parent leans on the child for emotional support that the child is not mature enough to give the parent. This generally happens when the parent is lonely or there is some kind of broken family dynamic going on. The child feels special and close to the parent because the parent is sharing this kind of information with them, but ultimately the parent's emotional needs become the center of the relationship, and I think that's what's key. That leaves the child's emotional needs neglected. Mm-hmm. Which again kind of sets up, so we talk about kind of cycles and and things perpetuating, so then that's kind of setting up their children for an insecure attachment as well. Absolutely, because it's completely unpredictable. So wait a minute, you're supposed to be taking care of me, Mm -hmm. now suddenly I'm taking care of you. Right, right. Here we go, again, something that we see a great deal in substance abuse. Yeah. Right, when one parent or both parents are drug addicts. Yeah. No question. So this also seemed to be a centerpiece of Dee Dee's control over Gypsy. She initiated Gypsy into criminal behavior by making her an accomplice um, and often saddled Gypsy with her own emotional baggage when she wanted to manipulate Gypsy into acquiescing to her demands to continue on with their deception, even as Gypsy tried to rebel against her. So emotional incest can create dichotomous sort of love-hate feelings towards a parent and a very irrational and rigid sense of loyalty to them, which I think we saw in this story. 
This often works to the parent's advantage when they are trying to unconsciously or otherwise manipulate the child against the other parent, which we sometimes see during and after a contentious divorce, and can lead to things like um, the term now I believe is parental alienation, which is the term we use to describe when feuding parents turn or attempt to uh, turn children against each other. This concept is something that comes up pretty regularly, again, in substance abuse treatment um, when we are exploring issues of past trauma or abuse. So how far do you want to take this down the rabbit hole, Dr. McCona? <laughs> Let's go for it. I'm uh, in. All right. I'm all in. All right. So, Because we're, we're going to get into some depth psychology here. And I love the term depth psychology when we speak about Jung because I believe that's what he does. Uh, he sort of really zeroes in on the deepest parts of the unconscious psyche and looks for the reasons why and how people do what they do. So here I wanted to speak on the issues of the mother complex, which is something I did a significant amount of work around and research on when I was a PhD student. Interestingly, my work mostly centered around men. So looking at this complex as it related to women was also very interesting for me and eye-opening. Yeah, it was it was very different you know, just from reading your dissertation and how it applied to men and then looking how, at how this complex plays out very differently in women was fascinating to me. And this is really out, outside of my realm. I'm not familiar with a lot of this, but I'm interested in it because it really gives more motivation. Like it helps us to examine the motivations behind the behaviors sure. more than, you know, some of the stuff that I, I talk about. Jung really wants to get to the heart of the matter. What are the most deep-seated reasons for why people do what they do? Jung found that a lot in the archetypes and in mythology because we seem to always have a story that encompasses what this psychological concept really embodies. Mm -hmm. So let's start with what a complex is when I say that because I use that term a lot. And I said Jung believed that this is a very simplified version, by the way, of course, um, because a complex can be complex, but... <laughs> hence the name. Hence the name. Yeah, got it. Um, it's a kind of emotional wounding of sorts where a lot of intense feelings are kept. Oftentimes we get uncomfortable or defensive when people start to activate our complexes, whatever they may be. In this sense, a complex has the power to hinder our emotional development and harm our relationships with patterns of behavior that may serve us at one point in our life, but become pathological as we grow into adulthood. We see this uh, in strategies that people use for self-protection as a child or a teenager that work at the time, but become antisocial or even criminal later on. I see it all the time in my work. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, yeah. Right? So in the complex lies potential, however, and the promise of emotional and psychological growth and transformation. However, if we actually engage the inner work required to integrate our complexes, into our conscious psyche. In other words, we really have to confront them. Doing this work propels us forward into higher and more sophisticated forms of consciousness and emotional maturity. So have you ever met someone quite a bit older than you who, whenever you're around them, seem to give you a sense of peace and tranquility? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. So someone who you say, you know, when I get to be their age, I want to be like them. I want to be self-assured. I want to be calm. I want to be centered. Yeah, right? I've definitely had that experience, people that I've met. Sure. Okay. Well, there's a good chance that somebody like that has done some very powerful inner work in integrating their complexes, 
into their psyche throughout the course of their life. So those are the people that they, when you meet them, they feel very stable. They feel very balanced. Right. Do you they, agree? Okay. Yeah. It's sort of like they've, they've come to a psychological or emotional peace. Usually the people that I know who are like that, who are older, you know, significantly older than me, or even people our age who are, um, who are able to do that. It seems like they are invested in confronting psychological or emotional issues that they have and really sort of doing the inner work that is required to integrate those into their larger psyche. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas others who don't do that work tend to be tend to exhibit that you can tell that they're not doing the inner work they need to be doing because they are expressing these complexes in ways that can hinder relationships. And we've all known people like that as well. Well, I, 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 I'm wondering about like the midlife crisis. Sure. Is that a form of like a complex? Because you see some people like they'll enter middle age and they do it just so gracefully. And it's like you almost you wouldn't think that they're at that stage in their life because they've they're just they're just so graceful and peaceful and balanced about it. And then you see other people that they enter midlife and it's just like... They kind of lose it. They kind of lose it and they're buying sports cars and having affairs with younger people. Sure. Or like, you know, dressing younger than they are. And There's definitely, I think, that at that point in life, for people who have complex issues, there's something about that particular time in your life when that really activates complexes that people have unconscious complexes that people have the midlife crisis in itself i don't think is necessarily a complex but i think that if you have complexes going on internally Uh unconsciously that time of your life will really bring them out okay interesting yeah there's just some things that you know i mean you and i you just turned 40 i'm 43 we've been right around this sort of midlife time period and we have been seeing this in action for a while but i think that it it's not a complex unto itself these are complexes that already existed but are being really sort of tickled by this time period in a person's life okay without a doubt the two biggest influences and you sort of got into this at the beginning the two biggest influences on us as it pertains to how we develop complexes are our parents mm-hmm I fully believe that I that we inherit a ton of genetic and psychological information from them. Some we deem as positive, which goes on to become part of our ego persona or the part that we show the world. And some of it is considered bad, which goes on to become part of our shadow, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Sitting in the shadow are unconscious strategies to protect uncomfortable emotions that we have about our parents, which most of us have, whether we acknowledge them or not. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 Totally agree. So a lot of us will not acknowledge a lot of people we know will not acknowledge that they have conflicting emotions about their parents because we are told since day one, love, honor, respect your parents. Yeah, but I would. Yeah, but I think almost everybody does. Oh, they're human. They're human beings. Yeah. You have conflicting emotions about every relationship. Of course. Of course. Except my our relationship, right? Well, yeah, that goes without saying. <laughs> and my relationship with my dogs. That's right. No, that's that's there. as pure as that's as pure as they come. <laughs> right. So as you can imagine, I see these complexes all day long at work. Um, and with the work that I do with drug addicted criminals, a lot of what I do is help men become conscious of these and start the process of integrating their complexes 
so they can confront feelings of shame and start building true self-esteem. But this is difficult work that unfortunately many people will never really do in the course of their lifetime. I see this being the case, but an extreme case, with Dee Dee Blanchard. Jung describes what the mother complex looks like as it can manifest in women. There was some information pertaining to Dee Dee Blanchard and her own mother surrounding this case being one of fierce competition, setting up Dee Dee to never feel like she was living up to expectations or that she was never fully accepted for who she was by her mother. So whatever the cause, Dee Dee's actions seem to fit almost perfectly with a strong mother complex issue as described by Jung. A mother complex can go two ways in women, which is always the case with Jung, it seems, but one with an overemphasis on maternity or the mother-like qualities of the woman, or the opposite, which would be the near total destruction of these qualities. Very little room in between hmm. when, okay. when you have a complex like this, which is where most women, I would say, probably fall somewhere in between. Sure. Most yeah. balanced women. Yeah. Right. When, as it relates to their maternal instincts. So in Dee Dee's case, this complex seemed to manifest as a very strong emphasis on maternal qualities. Jung wrote about the husband being seen by the mother as little more than an avenue to having a child to satisfy this maternal instinct. This seems to fit given the nature of the very limited relationship Gypsy Rose's father had after Gypsy's birth, which was something that we found later on had been sort of engineered by Dee Dee. Jung goes on to describe a complete identification with whoever is in her care, clinging to her children, or in this case, child, because without Gypsy, Dee Dee really had no identity of her own. Hmm. So Jung goes on by saying that women who are always in a state of living for others are actually driven by a fanatical insistence, and that's a quote, on maternal rights and often destroy their personality and the personal lives of their children. In this case, Dee Dee was so unconscious about who she was due to her own mother complex, her drive for power over the one she cared for, which was Gypsy, only became more extreme. Jung believed that mothers like this, while presenting as ultimate caretakers, never really sacrifice anything as they are actually using this role for the pursuit of power. And in this case, Dee Dee's power over Gypsy was painstakingly created and manipulated to be absolute. So here we have some very profound implications for Dee Dee's psychological state, but I would argue that this rests in her own unconscious complex about feelings she had toward her own mother and her desire to remain unconscious about them rather than doing the inner work to integrate them into her conscious ego persona, which is what we would say that the most evolved people would do over the course of their lifetime. Right, right. So just... A small disclaimer, this is not the old pop psychology Freudian argument that everything has to do with the mother. As Jessica was saying earlier, father complexes can be every bit as destructive as well. I see this in issues men have with fathers who are absent from their lives a great deal. And how that cycle repeats itself when men who grow up without fathers often wind up in prison, again absent in the lives of their own children. But it would be folly, I believe, to not acknowledge just how much psychological and emotional influence our parents have on us and how we integrate that into our own personalities growing up. And I would think that, or I would argue that, that was the case here with Dee Dee and the complex that was given to her by her own mother. Well, and it's very interesting. And as you were, you know, we were talking about the research that you were doing on the mother complex and how it applies to women I mean, what you were reading, it was like, oh my gosh, that sounds 
Like there were so many elements of the of that that fit this case. Absolutely. So it was it was actually pretty fascinating, just just to explore it from that perspective. So you know, and we and so we've talked a lot about Dee Dee, and obviously we're very interested in the psychology behind that. But I do want to just spend a little bit of time talking about Gypsy, and you know we talked about the fact that we didn't talk so much about Gypsy because she for me she's just it's easier for me to understand. Right. You know, some might say that Gypsy acted in self-defense. However, you know, the law is very clear in this country that in order for an act to be considered self-defense, there must be an imminent threat to the person. And so Dee Dee was asleep in her bed when she was murdered. So that argument of self-defense, kind of hard, kind of hard to That's a hard sell. Use. Yeah. Sure. So in the 1990s, there were attempts by victims, primarily women victims of domestic violence, who had killed their partners to say that their behavior was due to battered woman syndrome. This syndrome is thought to be related to post-traumatic stress disorder and to develop in people who are subjected to long-standing domestic violence, that cyclical violence that, you know, we often hear about. And it's related to learned helplessness as well. So this is kind of, you know, we talked about Dee Dee's attempts at creating this sense of learned helplessness in Gypsy. Oh, there's no, there's no question in my mind. Yeah, me either. I mean, I think that that that's exactly what happened. Right. How do I make this person completely dependent on me? Yeah, and when it occurs in the context of abuse, um, what they found is that it, it happens when the victim starts to blame themselves for the abuse. Which, you know, since they're not responsible and they can't control another person's behavior, it really results in these feelings of helplessness. Okay. There's really no way that she could have made Dee Dee stop what she was doing or affected affect, affect that in any way. Right. So the name of the syndrome was later changed to battered person syndrome as it was better understood that it's not just women who are victims of domestic violence. Basically, the syndrome was used to explain and in some ways justify the murder of the abuser, saying it was in self-defense. The defense has been unsuccessful in United States courts. However, a chronic history of abuse can be considered a mitigating factor, which can result in lesser charges or a lesser sentence for the murderer. I don't remember, but I know that that was an issue with the Menendez brothers. They did talk about, so that that's kind of leading me into my next point, so Battered woman syndrome, battered person syndrome, that was really in the context of domestic violence as it applied to like romantic partners. But there's a similar syndrome called battered child syndrome, Mm. which applies to children who've been abused over time like that. I remember when the Menendez brother trial was going on, that was introduced into the whole narrative was this idea. And that was their defense is that they had been subject to years and years of abuse by their father. Right, and they argued that it was they killed them in self-defense. But similar to this case, because they couldn't prove that there was imminent danger of violence, right. that defense really fell apart. But did but was it a mitigating factor in the sentencing? Do you remember? Because I, I, I can't recall, and maybe that's another case that we'll do a future episode on. Sure. I, I can't recall. But battered child syndrome it actually started as a medical diagnosis. Uh, as it addressed the physical damage that occurred as a result of abuse. But as they looked at these kids more, they realized that it wasn't just physical damage that was occurring, but that there's a real psychological component to this syndrome. 
So similar to the battered person syndrome, battered child syndrome has not been successful as a self-defense defense. So nobody has gotten completely off on the murder of their parents by saying, well, I was a battered child. Uh. Unless they were at imminent, in imminent danger of being harmed. So like I said, it can be presented as mitigating evidence as it helps to explain the person's behavior, even though it doesn't completely excuse it. Right. So as far as I'm aware, Gypsy did not claim to have this syndrome, and I don't believe that it was ever presented formally to the court as a mitigating factor. But the prosecutors did appear to appreciate the suffering and helplessness that Gypsy experienced. I think that's why she was given the option to plead to second-degree murder, even though, I mean, there was clearly planning and premeditation. Right. I think they gave her the option for that plea because they were trying to account for the impact of all the years of psychological and physical abuse that Gypsy suffered. Right. You know, I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like to grow up in an environment such as Gypsy's. And from all accounts, it sounds like she really had started to believe that there was no escape. You know, in, in some of the interviews with her, she's talked about the fact that her previous attempts at running away were unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And so she really believed that if she ran away in the future, the same thing would happen. And then once her mom had the courts find her incompetent, she felt like, well, who's going to believe me if I say that I'm being abused, that all of this stuff is fake? Yep. And I think that Dee Dee engineered it that way specifically. So if if Gypsy ever did run away, there was always that in her back pocket. And so, you know, and it's hard because it's like, I understand how Gypsy believed that. I understand kind of her state of mind in planning this whole thing. But at the same time, for me, it doesn't excuse it. Because no matter what, there still was another way out. Even if it was hard for her to see, there had to have been another way out. And so, you know, in, in this case, I think, I feel like the courts got it right. I mean, I feel like she deserved some punishment for it because you can't murder people. Right. Well, this would be part of her initiation into adulthood anyway. If she's really to become an adult, she has to know there are definite consequences for your decisions. Yeah, and it's a hard lesson to learn from adolescence into adulthood. Right. But it's definitely one I think that she needed to learn. And and I think that she did deserve some consequences for that, but I agree that you know, being convicted of first degree murder or potentially getting the death penalty not appropriate in this case. No. So this part about the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard by Gypsy, her daughter, reminds me of a metaphor that author Robert Bly sort of uses in the book Iron John, which is about initiation that boys go through in order to become fully adult men. And we'll have a link to it on our website. There's one part where a number of men had an issue with, and it's the metaphor is this. The boy has to steal a key. And um, we can get into what the key, you know, why he has to steal the key, because that's part of the larger story. That's part of the larger myth in order to unlock a cage that the wild man is kept in. But he has to steal this key that is kept under his mother's pillow. And there's all kinds of metaphors that go along with that. This is the bed she sleeps in with the boy's father and stuff like that. So there were some people that had issues with the idea that he had to steal the key. In other words, he had to get this key by some use of deception or trickery. Okay. You cannot go to your mother and ask her for it. 
You can't, she's not going to hand it over to you. That's not how this has to be done. This has to be done through some sort of cunning. This has to be done through some sort of deception, some sort of trickery. And a lot of men at the time had an issue with that part of this, the Iron John myth, the Iron John story. But it goes to show what sort of has to be done in a young man in order to really throw off his mother complex, which is what R.A. Johnson, the Jungian scholar and writer, really truly argued was the biggest challenge that any man will face in the course of his life, throwing off his mother complex. Mm -hmm. This and the way the Gypsy Rose story is told, it sort of really, it really reminded me of that idea. She really felt that there was no way, just like you said, for her to ask Dee Dee to be any different. Can you release me? Can you let me go? There was no way to do that. This was going to have to take the form of some kind of trickery, some sort of deception, some sort of maybe even a violent break. Now, I'm not saying that that would rise necessarily to the level of murder, but this was not going to happen naturally. This was not, Dee Dee Blanchard was not going to go down without a fight. There had to be some way that there, that this break occurred and it was not going to be pretty in, in any case. There would have been, I think that if Dee Dee had lived, there would have been a prolonged legal battle with all those court papers and all kinds of things. Yeah. So it just sort of really, it just sort of interested me how this went down because again for men i know mm-hmm. dealing with your mother complex which is which manifests itself differently in men than it does in women but it has to be done through some sort of deception or some sort of trickery it, because the mother's not going to the terrible mother at any rate is not going to give you that key you have to steal it from her and that's what gypsy was attempting to do with this plot i believe Yeah, unfortunately, you know, she went about it in this way rather than in a way that she wouldn't have such terrible consequences. Right. Um, But, you know, she's she's already been in prison and apparently she's doing quite well being away from Dee Dee. And they were talking about how, you know, most people when they go into prison, they lose weight because the food is just not as good as what you would eat in the free world. Right. But in Gypsy's case, they took her feeding tube out and she was finally able to eat. And she actually gained weight going into prison. Right. And, you know, we saw in the, the HBO docu- documentary, Mommy Dead and Dearest, they interview her after she's been serving a little bit of time in prison. And just to see the change is really remarkable. Yeah. Again, I don't think Dee Dee had to die in order for this independence to blossom in Gypsy. But there was, I think it was pretty obvious from the get-go, Dee Dee was not going to go willingly. She was not going to go without a fight. She was not going to release Gypsy into the world to grow up. That was not going to happen. No, that, that was definitely not going to happen. Right. So there needed to be something extreme, unfortunately. You know, unfortunately it was murder. Well, it's, it is just, it's such an interesting case and it's not something that you hear about every day as far as Munchausen by proxy, you know, kid that, that has her mother murdered. Um, so there's been a lot of media attention with this case and, you know, we talk about the documentary, but it's also been the subject of a recent Hulu series called The Act. And, you know, they do take a, a few creative liberties with it, but 
It was just so fascinating, so interesting. Very well done. I think Dr. Phil has a podcast on it. I mean, everybody is talking about this case. Right. And, and it is because it's just so out of the realm of things that we're used to hearing about. It's very hard to understand. So, you know, if you guys have other thoughts on this case, we would certainly love to hear them either on our website, on our discussion page at psychologyafterdark.com. Or you can visit us on Facebook and leave some comments there. We'll have some associated articles. We'll have the link to that book, Iron John, on our webpage. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please, please, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We really appreciate that. And please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We are doing episodes every two weeks, so we will be seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and Starlight by Soft Space, both provided by Jamendo.